It's good to have your company. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you are listening to The Bible Teachers. Over the next seven programs, I'll be speaking with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, Is God for real? Peter was born in the United Kingdom and hasn't always been a Christian. Growing up, if he thought about religion at all, it was to identify himself variously as an atheist or an agnostic. Peter's journey from unbelief to belief is fascinating and has helped shape the direction of his ministry. Peter enjoys helping people address the big questions and to find meaning and joy in their lives. Our question today is perhaps the biggest of them all. Does God exist? Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Barry. How can you be so confident that God exists? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a question I guess many, many people uh, have been asked or asked themselves. And um, it's there are a number of lines of objective evidence that we can look at and we will look at today. But uh, I guess the biggest thing from my perspective on uh, I, I mean my own confidence of God's existence is the experience that I've had with God over the last 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of think of it like this. Um, I was... Um, born in the UK and I had a father there. Sadly, my father's since passed away, but um, I could tell you about my father, but you personally have never met my father. Um, And you may say, well, I don't believe your father existed. Uh, That belief that you have about my father uh, doesn't change the fact of his existence. Uh, In other words, I have an experience with my father uh, and that experience more than anything Um, helps me to know that he exists uh, regardless of the objective uh, arguments. Uh, That actual personal relationship that I have with my father um, is is one of the most uh, compelling evidences, Mm -hmm. I guess, of of the existence of of my father to me, and I I would extend that to my heavenly father, to to God himself. But we want to talk about some objective arguments. That's a subjective argument. But we want to look at some objective arguments. And I suppose one of the most compelling for me in regards to objective arguments would be the argument from design. Um, we, you know, perhaps if you're a parent or a grandparent even, you might have had the experience of a, a young child coming to you at some point and asking the question, where did I come from? And, uh, you know, the, the mother or the father might say, well, you, you came from your parents. And he might think about that for a while and, and then say, but where did they come from? And, well, we came from your grandparents. Well, where did they came from? come from? And um, uh, it seems that human beings have this desire to know uh, where did we come from originally. And uh, in terms of design... You, you know, you have the classic question of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, and that's a question that is, is actually difficult for science to answer. Um, but uh, in terms of, of origins and design, uh, some people say that uh, the Earth uh, lies in what is known as the Goldilocks zone. You know, I'm sure we remember the, uh, the children's story, the nursery rhyme of Goldilocks and the three bears where... She goes into the bear's home and there's three bowls of porridge. You know, one's too hot and one's too cold, but the other is just right. Uh, And the idea is that the earth uh, lies in a zone in the solar system that is just right for uh, sustaining life. We are not too close to the sun, that we would be 
too hot. The, the climate would be too hot to sustain life. We're not too far away from the sun. We lie in that Goldilocks zone. And um, some people say, well, you know, is that a coincidence or is actually designed that way? And when we look at the universe, uh, what we know about the universe, when we look at um, our solar system, of course, uh, we see just how special the Earth is. So that uh, capacity for for life, um, in your mind, indicates that the world has been designed? Yes, I believe that the world has been designed. I guess there are two uh, models, and we're going to look at some of that in a, a future program too, where we look at the, the two models of uh, was our world created or does it evolve from purely natural um, circumstances where there was no uh, outside influence of an intelligent designer. Um, when we look at the Earth, for instance, um, we can think of the moon as well. The moon obviously circles the Earth about once a month, um, and we've been to the moon. We've been to the moon six times, and I you know, love uh, looking at all of that space exploration history. I, I really enjoy thinking about all the Apollo missions and all of that kind of thing. We've been to the moon. And we know that there's no life on the moon. And yet the moon exists in that same Goldilocks area of the solar system. Yes. And the question would be, if uh, life arose by chance, by an evolutionary means on planet Earth, and there's such an abundance of life here, there's such an abundance of water here, why is it that having gone to the moon, it, it still exists in that Goldilocks area, has no life at all? Yes, I guess this brings up the, um, the difference between the planets in our solar system if they all formed out of a gaseous cloud, how do you explain the tremendous variation that we see in their composition? Yeah, their that, that's right. There's such great um, variety, even in our own solar system, and I, I guess that's the area that we have to examine. I mean, we, we uh, it's our backyard, so to speak, in terms of, uh, the, um, in terms of the, the galaxies and space out there. Scientists themselves would acknowledge that the world is special, but they would say that um, to deal with this, we have to, 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 to get to the point of saying, well, this all happened by chance, then we have to have lots of other places or lots of other universes which um, then make the chance of something happening here in this universe possible. Yeah. Prob or at least probable. Well, in terms of um, design, and we, we'll talk about that in a little bit as, as well, um, the, the, the whole multiverse uh, idea that you're alluding to. But um, in terms of design, you could go to um, – I've been to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota in America, and uh, there you've got four presidents' heads carved into the mountain, which was uh, an amazing feat, really. It was uh, done, I think, in the 20s and 30s, and um, I think 95% of the carving was done by dynamite, just uh, carefully placing the dynamite and blowing away parts of the rock. But those four presidents' heads that um, look out from that mountain, you could look at that and look at a, a, you know, a comparable, just rugged mountain, and you could see that the faces there were designed. We could say, well, maybe the rain and the wind over a long period of time uh, just formed the faces as they were. But uh, I think we all recognise that when you look at those faces, the design is so intricate, it's so detailed, that we would not accept that these faces carved in the mountain were, were formed that way simply by naturalistic means. There must have been a designer. We recognise that. So I think we can recognise design uh, in the natural world as well as uh, in those four faces. Now, I suppose 
when you think about those four faces, they, they don't, uh, they're not alive. They're, they're just rock. They've been carved into the rock. Uh, they don't breathe. They don't uh, speak. They don't hear. They don't see. They don't talk. And here we are human beings with all of those capabilities, thinking uh, people. And uh, we would say, well, clearly those rock faces uh, were designed, and yet we sometimes struggle to see the evidence of design in, in living things. Mm. So the, the design in a human being is massively more, the design there is massively more complex. Of course. Than just Mount Rushmore. Yes. So if we can identify it there in yes. Mount Rushmore, we should also be able to identify it when we look at ourselves and when we look at the life that we see in the world around us. Yeah. I mean, uh, science has um, coined the phrase the anthropic principle to describe uh, these uh, the universe that we, we see around us. We are able to measure certain physical constants in the universe um, and those constants are so finely tuned uh, that even if they were moved a fraction of a fraction, uh, it would make life impossible in the universe. So um, it's just uh, scientists have recognised that the universe uh, appears, has the appearance of design. And the, the anthropos, of course, means man. So it appears that it's been designed to support and to sustain the life of man. That's, that's the point of the anthropic principle. Um, modern cosmology has identified no less than 40 measurable characteristics of the universe. Each of these characteristics are fine-tuned to such a degree uh, that moving one of them in either direction only a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage would make the existence of life anywhere in the universe impossible. Uh, so we would live then not in a life-sustaining universe but a life-prohibitive universe. So it's pretty hard then to escape the conclusion that the world was designed for life. Well, that's my the conclusion that I draw. And, of course, uh, different people look at that evidence and they come up with alternative explanations. But I believe the most reasonable explanation is that it looks like it's designed because yes. it was designed. Uh, so, for instance, uh, some of these... Um, physical universal constants that have been measured like a strong nuclear force constant or a weak nuclear force constant, a gravitational force constant, electromagnetic force constant, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, I think uh, if you, one, one person put it like this, um, if you were imagine for a moment that you were stood up against a wall and there were 40 um, men with rifles and you were you were there before the firing squad and you were blindfolded and uh, the sergeant comes out and he gives the order ready aim fire and you hear the shots go off but you realize a second later that you're still alive somehow you haven't been hit uh, well what are the possible explanations for that well maybe the the rifle men all turned around and shot in the other direction uh, maybe they were all firing blanks. Uh, so you remove the blindfold, uh, but you see around you this arc of 40 bullet holes all around your uh, body. And so you can come to a conclusion, either they all missed accidentally, but the pattern in which those bullet holes are arranged on the wall uh, strongly suggests that they all missed deliberately. Mm. And when we're talking about these 40-plus uh, physical constants of the universe that are measurable, they're so finely tuned 
that moving one of them a fraction would make life impossible in the universe, and therefore many have concluded that it looks as though the universe was designed to support life. Uh, and I believe that that's no coincidence. It's no accident. It's interesting that Scripture actually says uh, that, or well, God says in Scripture, that he designed the world to be inhabited. So what you're saying really, in, a sen- in essence, fits with that particular statement. Yeah, the... the um Sir Fred Hoyle, um, he, he wrote this. He said, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers that one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion beyond, almost beyond question. And so uh, here, this astronomer is um, just citing that these incredibly tight, fine-tuned constants that we find in the universe point um, very uh, much to a designed universe as rather as opposed to a universe that arose by accident. If the evidence is so clear, how do we explain the rise of the, uh, the new atheists? Well, I think there are a number of things. I mean, in my own life, uh, I, wrote, I grew up not being a, a believer, not, not being a believer in God. And uh, I think, yeah, to be honest, um, part of that was I didn't want there to be a God. And um, in terms of the new atheism, there's not so much new in terms of their arguments. What's new is the ferocity, perhaps, with which the, they argue their case. Um, so, for instance, um, in the uh, old atheism, uh, atheists would recognise that if we were to embrace atheism, if we put God out of the picture in our society, then our society would look very different. The new atheists really try to suggest that uh, if we reject God, if we put God out of the picture, uh, it's not just that life will carry on as normal, but actually they believe life would improve. Um, previous generations of atheists um, have have said that um, they believe that you know um, the morals of the of the the world um, that we live in would be very different. Um, for instance, uh, existentialist, uh, one of the older atheists, one of the older generation atheists, uh, Albert Camus, he admitted that the death of God meant the loss of purpose, joy, and everything that makes life, uh, sorry, makes life worth living. So um, he he recognised that if we put God out, we have to, we're undermining all the values upon which Western society was built. Um, uh, another uh, comment on this by. Uh, John Hort, he says, the new softcore atheists assume that by dint of Darwinism, we can just drop God like Santa Claus without having to witness the complete collapse of Western culture, including our sense of what is rational and moral. At least the hardcore atheists of the past understood that if we truly, uh, since we were truly sincere in our atheism, the whole web of meanings and values that has clustered around the idea of God in Western culture has to go down the drain along with its organising centre. So uh, it's the the uh, though it seems like a superficial question, does God exist or doesn't he exist? Uh, the consequences of whether there is a God in the universe or whether there isn't are actually quite uh, far-reaching. Now, the evidence for design seems to be, to me, fairly compelling. And the new atheists have been very active, uh, and yet there doesn't seem to be any evidence that they're having a major impact on people's attitudes. 
Yeah, the well, I can just cite one poll. There was a Harris poll uh, conducted in the United States, for instance, and uh, you know the United States is um, uh, a nation that uh, probably is is more spiritual than an Australia would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a Harris poll was conducted in 1994, and um, the, there were two uh, questions in mind: uh, humans. Did humans evolve from lower animals? And it was yes or no. So did humans evolve from lower animals? In 1994, 44% answered yes and 46% answered no. So very even uh, as to those that believed we arose from lower animals and those that didn't. Uh, The same poll was conducted in in 2005. They asked the same question. And uh, in 2005, 38% were now saying yes and 54% were saying no. And it it looked as though um, the idea of evolution, of one creature turning into another creature and us actually evolving from ape-like creatures, uh, it seemed to be losing ground. Uh, in the populace, and uh, we could sort of speculate as well. Why would that be? Why would you know evolution? I I went to state school, so evolution is taught in the state school system. It's taught in the universities uh, around the world. And why would it be that people would be changing their views or or thinking less likely that we came from lower? forms of animals. And uh, I believe part of that is uh, the incredible design that we are discovering within the cell. So really it's becoming harder to become a materialist in the sense that you've got more and more complexity to explain and it looks more and more and more like there was a designer. And I think this probably explains the the reason why the new atheists are so uh, vociferous because they realise that there's a lot at stake and it's getting harder for them, and so they're coming out in a more strident tone into the community. But the community is obviously not buying the arguments. Well, that's, that appears to be the case. And I think that um, w- w- there's a little bit of a, a giveaway, I guess, in the arguments of some of the new atheists, because uh, what, what's interesting is um, they seem to reserve their most um, critical uh, comments for Christianity, whilst they're opposed to religion per se, it's Christianity really that they're targeting. And uh, it's interesting from the perspective that many of the comments that the New Atheists will make are in regard to the kind of God that is portrayed, say, in the Bible or, or in Christianity. And they're, they're uh, pulling certain uh, parts of the Bible out of their context and uh, talking about that and saying, we don't like this picture of God, or how can you believe in a God like this? Mm. And that's a fascinating uh, way to approach it because that is not an argument for the non-existence of God. It's simply saying, we don't like this picture of God. And in fact, many of the arguments used by the atheist, uh, I would actually say, yeah, I don't like that picture of God either, and it's not the kind of God that I believe in. And it's possible to um, twist uh, the uh, context of a certain passage and make it appear to say something that that um, is not a not an attractive picture of God at all. Um, so I think when you're talking about this is not an attractive picture of God or how can you believe in a God like this, that's not actually a, an argument for the non-existence of God. At the top of the program, we talked about does God exist? And probably as uh, equally as important a question is what kind of God exists? Hmm. Uh, is it a, a loving, caring God? 
uh, that Christians would want to advocate? Is it a kind of God who winds up the universe and walks away, uh, the kind of deist uh, picture of God? Uh, you know, a God that maybe created the universe but doesn't care about uh, the universe or particularly us? Or is it, in fact, God a kind of cruel tyrant, which is really the kind of God that the new atheists are picturing and therefore saying we reject God because we believe him to be a tyrant? So it's really an emotional argument in many ways. Yeah, it's to me, it's an, it's an interesting way of um, arguing the non-existence of God by talking about what kind of God he is. I noticed that um, Professor Anthony Flew, who was uh, an atheist for around 60 years, converted to deism and then theism back in 2004. And in 2007, he put out a book, There Is a God. And in that book, after explaining how he came back to theism, he indicated that he thought Christianity was the most likely of the religions to be true. And maybe this explains why the new atheists are targeting Christianity in particular, although they they would target all religions. Sure. So maybe that's, that's well. That's part probably of the, the case. I mean, I uh, like I said, I, I grew up as a, a secular agnostic, and um, uh, I one of the reasons I became a Christian is because I believe Christianity makes sense, uh, and I think that that's what Anthony Flew ultimately um, uh, concluded. Um, he, it was interesting on the on the front of his book. It says how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind, mm. and of course Anthony Flew was uh, one of the foremost uh, propagators of not only evolution but of atheism um, in his era. Um, and one, I mean, if we, um, I just want to share a quote maybe from his book, sure. where he says um, he actually talks about the fact that even if you are an atheist, you have certain beliefs. Um, and it's not simply a scientific argument. It is a, an argument of philosophy and what you believe. He says, indeed, atheism itself has a number of propositions that have to be accepted by faith, e.g. that something, the universe, came from nothing, non-living matter evolved into living cells by stochastic chemistry, complex specified information arose in, without intelligence, morality arose by natural selection, etc. So he's highlighting the fact that even uh, if as an atheist, uh, which he was, he would have to take certain things by faith. He believed certain things. Um, and what, what he goes on to talk about is the fact that um, he says, what I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the most unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. This might explain why the uh, new atheists have targeted not only creationists but also um, those who are in favour of intelligent design because the people who are in favour of intelligent design wouldn't say they necessarily have a religious perspective. They're coming from a scientific perspective where they're saying, well, the evidence for design is so obvious that we have to posit that there is actually a designer in place. But they don't go to the extent that the creationists might and identify that person as the God of the Bible. And I think that's important because uh, some people will say, well, if you uh, believe in evolution, that that would be science. But if you believe in creation, that's religion. And I think it's very important to recognize that there are a number of scientists who are now looking at uh, the the designer argument. They're looking at the, the... 
the creation and they're saying uh, the explanation that fits what we see uh, is is it fits far better with with creation than it does it fits far, far better with somebody designing this than trying to come up with a methodology of how this might have arose by chance mm. uh, flu goes on to to talk in his um, book he says it has become inordinately difficult he said even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of evolution of that first reproducing organism. I had to go where the evidence uh, leads, that's what he said. And I think in my own personal life, uh, as a secular uh, person who was um, an agnostic and one who believed in evolution, uh, I like his conclusion there. He said, I had to go where the evidence leads. And that's really, uh, that's where science should be. Uh, We we look at... uh, the evidence and we we follow where it leads. That's an interesting concept because um, he was perhaps the most systematic philosopher of atheism that Mm. we have seen. Mm. And for him then to find his way back to theism because he actually was raised as a Methodist, as I understand it. And his atheism was a result of his experience being taken to Germany prior to the Second World War by his father and seeing anti-Semitism and the stormtroopers and so forth. So he thought, if this is, if this world has been designed by God, how do you explain this sort of behaviour? Well, it's interesting his experience because he doesn't say, "I had an epiphany, I had a vision from heaven, I, you know, I suddenly became a, a, a believer, I had this strong sense of faith." No, that's not his argument. His argument is, "I had to go where the evidence leads." So he's coming from a rational uh, perspective. But I guess, in a sense, his uh, his original conversion to atheism would have been based on some emotional factors as well. And that perhaps impacted on the way that he was able to view the evidence. But over time, as he engaged in debates with theists and so forth, he began to reevaluate some of the evidence. And then as the, as the evidence about the complexity of DNA began to accumulate, it became harder and harder for him to stay with his position. So at a point, I think the evidence forced him to the conclusion that he had to reevaluate his own his own position. Yeah, well, uh, all of us, I think, have questions. All of us um, struggle uh, with certain uh, aspects of life. Why did this happen? Why doesn't this happen? Uh, and in fact, one, one another program in this series, we're going to discuss why is there so much suffering? Mm. And I think that's an exceptionally important question when we're talking about if we believe God is all loving and all powerful, then the natural question arises, and it has arisen for many, many people over thousands of years, um, why is there so much suffering? And that's something we'll cover in another And segment. I guess that, uh, that issue of suffering is one of the, um, the great reasons why many people become atheists. Yes. Because they can't reconcile this concept of a good God and a bad world. And so I guess that this is an issue that we're going to have to address, as you've said. And um, we're going to go to a break now. Uh, we'll be back in about a minute. Um, and when we come back after the break, I want to talk with Peter about the issue of morality and God, because I believe this has a uh, significant impact on the way that we view the whole issue of atheism. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Bible Teachers. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and I'm in conversation with Pastor Peter Watts. Peter wasn't always a Christian, and today we are looking at this question of does God exist? We've talked about some of the evidences for for um, the existence of God, some objective evidences in the, in the design of the universe. We want to turn now to the issue of morality. And Peter, I'm going to ask you, what sort of problems does morality or the existence of morality cause for atheists? Well, if we describe mar- uh, morality as uh, the difference between right and wrong, uh, what, what determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, uh, it's very difficult to, to come at that from a very naturalistic uh, point of view. If, if our universe arose uh, in a naturalistic way, just um, matter and energy, um, there's no overarching um, plan, there's no overarching design or reason, then uh, it's very hard to argue what is right and what is wrong. Um, If I were to steal something from you, um, why should I not do that? And I think that that's probably one of the difficulties for the atheist position is to come up with a, uh, a good rationale of why something is right and why something is wrong. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, a, a, a bus, uh, sorry, a boatload of children, we talk about um, uh, boat people coming to Australia and there's always concerns if people fall overboard or what happens with that. Imagine a boatload of children uh, going down in the ocean uh, and getting eaten by sharks. Well, we would say that that is uh, a tragedy. Um, but not for the shark, <laughs> uh, you know. From an atheistic point of view, what, why, uh, why does a child, for instance, have more value than a shark? Um, and so, uh, morality is a, a difficult subject, I think, if without uh, a god uh, in the universe. If you look at morality in any culture around the globe, uh, morality is is always drawn from the values and of the religious beliefs, the spiritual beliefs of the peoples. We, we were talking before about design, uh, and perhaps we can explain the origin of morality best with the concept of design. What are some of the alternatives to design, and where do they lead us in terms of un- our understanding of morality? Maybe you want to extend... Yeah, we talked a little bit uh, in our previous session about uh, the anthropic principle, and that is the principle where science has discovered um, many physical constants in the universe that are very finely tuned, and I mean very finely tuned, um, so that even if one um, point was moved a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, it would make life impossible in the universe. Now, how does an atheist scientist um, explain this? And there are a number of explanations that are offered. Uh, one 
explanation is that the universe appears to be so finely tuned just because it does. Um, that it's the way it is because it's the way it is and there is no why. Um, I think for many that that is an unsatisfactory explanation and so they're looking for a little more. Um, Another explanation that has been proposed is that we live in a a multiverse. So our universe, as vast as it is, the theory goes that it is just one of an infinite number of universes. And because there are an infinite number of universes, then ours just happens to be. It seems to me the problem with that is that um, science is really not able to answer that question about multiverses. Well, part of the problem of that particular explanation is that all we've done is we're moving the problem further away. We're having difficulty explaining this universe in terms of an evolutionary naturalistic model and therefore we um, theorise about other millions and millions of other universes for which we have no evidence at all Mm. Um, but we're we're having to um, come up with those other universes to explain the one we're in. Well speculation is part of science but only so far as that you can test the speculations. Yes. Once it goes beyond the testable, then clearly it's outside of the domain of science anyway. Sure, And when we're talking about origins, that's our problem. We can uh, conduct experiments in laboratory today and we can uh, come up with uh, results and conclusions and and make... uh, um, we can base our beliefs or the, our conclusions on the results. When you talk about the past, it's difficult to do that because we're not, we don't live a million years ago. We don't live even 10,000 years ago. We, we live in the, in the here and now, and so um, we don't live in the past. Another explanation, uh, I'll just cover these other um, explanations for the anthropic principle. Another one says we're only a, a virtual reality program. Uh, that we actually don't exist, uh, and you know that that makes uh, the entire argument irrelevant, really. Um, and then the the last one. This was on. Um, I was watching a, a program on ABC called Catalyst um, just last year, and one scientist actually proposed that his understa- his belief in why the universe is so finely tuned is he believes that our descendants in the far distant future found a way to travel back in time to the Big Bang and tinkered with the laws of physics. And I, I find that uh, a preposterous kind of explanation, but it also um, sort of says to me uh, that we're clutching at straws in looking for naturalistic explanations for why our universe and our world looks so designed for life and to, so designed to support our life as, as human beings. How does design, or the existence of God, if you will, how does that help us to understand the existence of morality and explain it? Sure. Well, I think if we're going to talk about what is right and what is wrong, who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? And we can look at this in many, many different areas. Um, you know, is it the government that decides or is it the general populace that that decides. Both the government and the general populace seem to have uh, different views depending on which era you look at. If you go back a century, there were certain laws made. Uh, Today, those laws are are very different, Um, some of them. Um, Am I the arbiter of right and wrong? Do I, in my own mind, decide just for myself? Well, what if I decide something's right but you decide it's wrong? Um, And so I think that 
morality, um, the the difference between right and wrong. Um, that if we dis- if we understand if we agree that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, where did that come from? And I believe that that came from the ultimate designer, and that that is God. Um, Time magazine ran a, a front cover uh, page called which just had the word evil. Does it exist, or do things do bad things just happen? Um, and I think that we recognise in our own life, you know, if if uh, if I killed someone to steal their food, we would say that that was wrong. But that happens in the natural world. So uh, if we are just highly developed animals, isn't that okay? Isn't it okay for me to act like an animal? What right does another human being have to tell me what is right and wrong? I guess that um, if we adopted that view that um, morality is just something that arose in a natural way, as a, as a result of evolution, then we wouldn't have any basis then for being able to judge the actions of a Hitler or a Stalin. Sure. If I let me just quote before we come to that, because I want to lead into that. There is um, a quote from uh, Richard's uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, of course, uh, one of the most foremost uh, speakers on atheism. Um, in a book called River Out of Eden, he says, in the universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its, its music. So here Dawkins is making a case for there really is no morality. If we believe in an evolutionary, atheistic uh, view of the origins of life, um, he says our DNA neither knows nor cares, um, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Well, you know, if, if someone was, uh, if a woman was raped... And the man just made that argument, I'm just dancing to my DNA. I don't think any judge in the land would accept that as a valid excuse. We know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We have that uh, in our conscience. And uh, I don't think uh, that we can... um, I don't look around at the world and say there is no good and there is no evil. We recognise good and evil in the world. And uh, I think... Like you mentioned, if we look at uh, the circumstances around regimes where God was excluded and you have no absolute authority for what is moral, what is right and what is wrong, then you can um, easily see how people have come to conclusions where they will do extraordinarily evil things. Uh, If you think about Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Russia, or um, Maoist China, uh, the atrocities that were committed there with uh, by people who had a world view that there was no God. And I like uh, Ber- David Berlinski's comment um, in his book, uh, The Devil's Delusions, Atheism and Its Scientific uh, Pretensions. He writes this, he said, what Hitler did not believe and what Stalin did not believe and what Mao did not believe, and what the what the SS did not believe, and what the Gestapo did not believe, was that God was watching what they were doing. Because if they thought 
that God was watching, they wouldn't have behaved in the ways that they did. We look, uh, we look at the news today and uh, we cry out for justice. When wrongs have been committed, uh, our society calls out for justice to be done. And uh, what the God of the Bible is saying is that ultimately justice will be done. Uh, that uh, people will not get away with atrocities. There will be justice in the end. And I think people, we, we see that. We see there's right and there's wrong, and we see that justice should be done. Well, those concepts must come from somewhere. We don't live in the law of the jungle, uh, which really uh, would be the natural way to live if we arose from an evolutionary fashion. There seems to be a view across most cultures that I'm aware of that things like um, killing other people, stealing from them, taking their wives, these things are wrong. So it seems to be this cross-cultural morality. The evolutionists would, I imagine, have to explain the, the, the fact that this has arisen um, through naturalistic means. And I think that would present a tremendous, a tremendous problem. I think that... Um if you compare the two models, the the um, I'm I'm basing uh, the theistic model on the the Christian Bible. So we're we're talking about the God that's revealed in the Christian Bible, and the overriding principle of the Christian Bible uh, is the principle of love. In fact, the Bible says that God is love. Uh, whereas, if you were looking at the principle um, underpinning um, evolutionary um, development. We talk about the survival of the fittest, which is a really selfish kind of uh, way of living where uh, it, what's important is for me to survive and whether you survive or not is neither here nor there, whereas really uh, the theistic view is completely different. I should care for you. I should care for you um, to such an extent that even if I uh, have to self-sacrifice in order for you to get what you need, then I'm willing to do that. So... Um, I think that, that that's an interesting principle. You see, some people, I think, would like to um, discard God because they don't want to be accountable to him, but they don't want to discard the principle of love and care for others. Hmm. And that's where I think the contradiction lies. We Somehow we can think that we can get rid of God and that we can still have a society that cares for one another, where principles of right and wrong are still respected, um, but uh, you can't get rid of one without getting rid of the other. There's another significant problem amongst others, and that is that if you believe that your mind, your consciousness, is just the result of blind chance, then you really have no basis for accepting that it's telling you anything good about the world or reasonable about the world. Well, so you have to assume that there's some divine, supra-rational intelligence to both define what morality is and to police it as well. And uh, I guess the other thing is that if your mind is just the result of blind forces, you have no basis for trusting it anyway. Well, that's right. This conversation becomes not an intelligent conversation but just uh, just random thoughts and words that have uh, emerged after thousands of years of evolutionary development and they're of no more value uh, than you know the, the the tides coming in and out. Um, so, but I think with with love, for instance, um, you know, 
if we talk about the love that we have for our parents or for our spouses or for our children or for uh, our friends, um, if we are nothing more than um, matter and energy and the process of uh, evolution, then then love is no more important or valuable than, say, indigestion. It's just another chemical reaction. Mm. Um, you know, uh, you ex- you experience love for someone. You know, your heart beats a little faster. Your your pulse is rating. You you know, you experience feelings. But this is nothing more than chemicals. In in a world without God, in a universe without God, this is nothing more than chemicals and has no more value than indigestion. And that does create problems for atheism because uh, you then have to explain um, how people came to be free because morality assumes that you have a choice, that you you can do the right thing or you can choose not to do the right thing. Yes. And so how do you explain choice if it's all just a series of chemical reactions? Well, that's true too. I I think uh, that, you know, morality... um, Obviously, when you think about uh, Christian morality, and, and I, I mention this because when we talk about Western society, Western society really is built on uh, Christian values. That, that's, that's how you would differentiate, I guess, Western society from uh, other parts of the world. The Western society was built on Christian values, uh, built on the notion that uh, the Bible revealed who God was, and therefore many of our laws, and even today, um, much of the morality in our society is governed by those principles that originally came from the Christian Bible. So you really can't meddle with that heritage without impacting on the way that we live our lives in our society. The whole structure, the institutions that flow from a belief in God have made the West what it is. So if you start playing with that, then you start to see the sorts of things that we saw in Nazi Germany. When you, well, when you change the foundation, ultimately you will change the values and you will change the society. Um, and so if we choose en masse to reject God and to discard God, we will then reject the, the values that underpin uh, that, that belief, that go all with that belief. So you can't ditch one without the other. I guess that's the important thing. Hmm. The other, the other, there's another aspect in regard to does God exist, and that is meaning to life. Uh, do our lives have meaning, or you know, are you here for a while, then you're gone, and that's just the end of it? Does it matter how you live your life? Uh, is there any meaning? Um, another magazine cover had the title "Are We Alone?" It seems to matter to human beings, whether you believe in God or not, to find out are we alone in the universe. You know, is is this the only planet? If you believe in evolution, is this the only planet on which life arose? We seem to want to know, um, are we the only ones out there? And uh, you've probably heard of uh, SETI in America, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, where we have been um, pointing uh, our satellite dishes out into the sky, listening um, for signals from outer space, uh, listening to find is there any intelligent life out there that may be trying to communicate with us. Well, it's interesting that um, SETI should exist because it's based on the assumption that you can identify if there's an intelligent source for signals and so forth that are coming to the Earth. And yet when we looked at the whole issue of design before, we saw that with the massive complexity, there are still people who want to explain it in materialist terms. Yes. 
Yeah. There's a, well, I just noticed in a news article on BBC News a couple of um, months ago. It said UK astronomers uh, are to coordinate their search for alien signals. And it said the British, British scientists are to make a concerted effort to look for alien life among the stars. The scientists believe it is time the UK effort was properly coordinated. And one of them said this, there are billions of planets out there he believes, it would be remiss of us not to at least have a half an ear open to any signals that might be sent to us. Um, and so this is a UK organisation who is setting up something similar to what SETI was in the United States. And they're saying, we've got to listen out there in case some somebody or someone out there is trying to send us some kind of signal. And of course, uh, the Christian Bible claims to be just that. It claims to be messages from a being outside of our world that wants to communicate to us and wants to tell us where did we come from, are we alone in the universe, but we don't necessarily like what it says and so we're looking for something else. We're looking for those alternative explanations. Mm. Well, I guess uh, if you posit that there is a God, then you can trust your mind because you know that there is meaning and purpose to the universe. And it seems to me that science has left its legitimate domain. And by the way, I'm a great supporter of science, as I imagine you would be as well. I think it's done some marvellous things for our world. But when scientists leave that domain of the observable and the testable evidence, they're no longer operating as scientists and have no more capacity to tell us about what the meaning of life is than any other person. They're in just the same boat as anyone else. Sure. And I think, as you see, as human beings, um, this is the difficulty we have with, with origins. We can't, we, we can't measure what was there millions of years ago. We weren't there to, to, do, to do that. We weren't there to see it. So we're postulating about what may or may not have been in the past. I think every human being recognises that we have our lives have meaning. We might not know what that is, but we, we're searching. Uh, every human being is not satisfied with the explanation that you're just an animal like any other animal and you will live for a while, you will die, and that's it. We have brains and minds that can think and reason, uh, and so we are looking for an explanation of why I am here. That question seems to be important to us. Uh, George Harrison uh, of the Beatles, he um, once wrote this. He said, for every human, there is a quest to find the answer to why I am here. Who am I? Where did I come from and where am I going? For me, that became the most important thing in my life. Everything else is secondary. And I can relate to that kind of thought that uh, finding out the why, if there was a reason for my existence, then surely that would be the most important thing for me to find out, for me to discover, is why am I here? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I as a human being? Uh, And I think those are very important questions that many people ask. If we see uh, design and DNA, the immense complexity of DNA, the storage capacity for information and DNA, and we see that that points us to an intelligent source, can we also look back from morality, the existence of morality in our world and our experience of morality, and say that it's a code, a moral code, just like DNA? DNA points back to a creator, so a moral code would also, in the immaterial domain, uh, immaterial domain point us back to 
a super rational, non-material source? Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's right. I, as I said earlier, uh, one of the things that attracted me to the Christian message as found in the Christian Bible is that it made sense to me. It was, it was rational. It was something that my intelligent mind could grasp as well as the emotional feeling side of me. So when I looked, for instance, at the Ten Commandments, which is the moral code uh, given in the Bible, uh, we're familiar with maybe with the story of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And uh, when we look at that code, it's very, very simple. There are only ten commandments on there, but it, it governs so much of our life and is applicable to all people. Um, that, you know, uh, it it makes sense that there would be uh, some guidelines, some rules, some boundaries uh, that my life can be lived within and that our personal experience tells us that our lives are more secure, they're happier, and uh, the people I live with are happier Mm. when I live within those boundaries. Well, it makes sense to me that if we were created in God's image then we would also be imbued with his sense of morality as well. You'd, you'd expect that God would imbue us with that sense of morality. And that's, that's the way I experience the world. So I think that also points us back to, to God. How can we be sure that we've got the right moral code? Well, I think, again, that comes to experience. I mean, many, many people have been searching for meaning. We talked about George Harrison before, uh, and he's searching the world for meaning. And what I have found when I've looked at uh, other religious views, when I've looked at uh, other philosophies, when I looked at um, the the real, I guess, meaning of, of atheism um, and the kind, you know, what kind of universe we would live in without God, uh, Christianity became very um, obvious to me. The the Christian message in the Christian Bible uh, became a message that made sense of my life uh, and made sense of the world in which I I was living. Um, I remember reading uh, Alastair McGrath in in, um, response to the book Richard Dawkins had written, which was The God Delusion. Alastair McGrath, who also uh, works at Oxford University, he wrote a book called The Dawkins Delusion, in which he wrote, Although I was passionately and totally persuaded of the truth of atheism as a young man, I subsequently found myself persuaded that Christianity was a much more interesting and intellectually exciting worldview than atheism. And so here is a, a man who is making that journey from atheism to Christianity. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, they say the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. Hmm. And I think that uh, it's fascinating. There's a line in the Bible that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I believe that um, put God to the test, put Christianity to the test, put the Bible to the test. And I believe that you will find that it is a satisfying uh, and well-rounded uh, argument in favor of a God. Well, Peter, it's been great talking with you today. I look forward to our next conversation, which is around the question, is there anything we can trust? I think um, that what we've said today leads in in, uh, fairly fairly nicely into that topic. Peter, I wonder whether you would close our conversation today with prayer. Thank you, Barry. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we are just grateful to you for the opportunity that we have to talk about you to learn about the world in which we live, to learn about ourselves, 
and to learn about you also. And uh, there are many questions um, and there are many different people experiences that people have. And I just pray today that uh, through this program, as people have been listening, I pray that they will continue to search, uh, search for you, search for meaning, to search uh, the Bible, to find out more about you. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, they will find you and that they will have a, a peace of mind that passes understanding. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Peter. Remember to join us next time. See you then. Goodbye. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.